You are listening to Fresh Tracks Weekly. Just know that there's also a video portion to this podcast, uh, so you can check that out on Randy Newberg Hunter YouTube channel. It will be posted there every week. This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. So last weekend, I went out one last time to try to film my bear tag. Karen and I went out and hiked our butts off, but we did not find any bears. We did get some good exercise, and we saw some elk. We saw some new country, so it was a success. But Montana's bear season is now over, so no bear for me this year. But Randy was up in southeast Alaska last week uh, with his niece, Jordan, and brother, Jason, chasing bears. So stay tuned for that hunt. Our field producer, Jace, was up there filming the hunt, and he is actually still in Alaska. He decided to stay an extra week. He has his own bear tag, and his family is meeting him up there, so they're going to chase some bears and do some fishing as well. So we'll have to get an update from him when he gets back. Other exciting news, Paul Kemper, our production coordinator, just got married. Married life is awesome. And yeah, the wedding was great. We had sunshine, we had quite a bit of rain, and then it cleared, we had an epic sunset and a double rainbow. So yeah, it couldn't have gone any better. We kayaked a whole bunch on Flathead, and I fished every dock in that cove with a Senko, with a crankbait, swim baits. I drowned a night crawler all night to see if a bass would pick it up and I only saw one fish in that cove but we hit some little lakes uh, a little bit north of Flathead and uh, picked up quite a few fish and it was it was like that redemption right at the end of the trip. Crushed some burgers on the way home and it was like the perfect way to cap it off. It's good to be back and see everyone. I missed everyone but it was like my first vacation since I was in seventh grade so I'll take the 10 days of sleep. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Looked like a great time. Congrats to Paul and Jordan. It's been a wild week in Montana. The rivers are crazy. So Michael is gonna give us the update on everything going on there. What's up fishing people? It's Michael over here in the fishing corner. Um, last weekend I was out of town in Boulder, Colorado for a wedding. So I didn't get to go out and dangle as much as I wanted to. Um, this week we had a serious, serious uh, push of water come through in southwest Montana. Um, Red Lodge was completely underwater from Rock Creek, and the Yellowstone um, registered its ever its highest value ever recorded. Um, so we had some serious damage from that, like our road systems, the parks closed, um, Livingston was you know, evacuated. It was crazy. The bridges being ripped out. Yeah, it was insane. So not a whole lot of fishing being done this week. Um, I did head out to my backyard, got a few clips of that. It was beautiful scenery. The fishing was lackluster. Uh, I caught one, uh, brown and, but besides that, it's just been super slow here. We got some clips of the Gallatin river raging the other day. Um, another river that's just registered I, I don't want to say it was the highest value ever but it very well could have been um but it's wet here in montana and we got a weekend full of warm weather and a lot of snowpack so we'll see what happens my plan is to go hit some tailwaters and maybe fish a lake uh tip for fishing high water if you're trout fishing in the river find that slow stuff near the bank and you might catch a big one this time of year so that's really it uh from the fishing corner day 91 will be tonight um on my quest to 200 days in 2022 back to you marcus crazy reminder of how wild nature can be uh it's so bad that the gallant national forest is actually closed down 
huge chunks of land. I'm talking over a million acres that is closed down to all public access right now. So hopefully that won't last long. Hopefully everything calms down, but it's pretty, pretty unprecedented. It's a uh, wild times for sure. Also to let you know, there will be no Fresh Tracks Weekly next week. I will be out of the office, so we will be delayed a week before we have the next episode. But with that, we'll jump into some news. Vail, Colorado, often known to have long lift lines at the ski resort and backed up traffic on the interstate. At least that's what I've been seeing in the press in the last few years. A lot of the coverage is focused on massive upticks and visitors into the area. It's a very popular spot, but the surrounding area of Vail is also home to some incredible wildlife. Um, there's some really cool habitat right around the town, and that's what recently caught my eye. Vail Resorts has been attempting to develop a five-acre piece of property close to the town for affordable employee housing. So there's been a lot of backlash against the resort for wanting to build on what has been found to be very important bighorn sheep winter range. The town of Vail said they had a good faith deal with the resort to maintain wildlife habitat while they were building their new housing developments. The town claiming to have upheld their end of the deal by agreeing to build additional employee housing on a different spot, but they're claiming that the resort went back on its word and is now moving forward with the plan to build on that winter range area. It's been a back and forth for years, but in the last few months, it's got more heated as the town council voted to potentially condemn the land. The town claims to have offered up multiple alternative solutions to their housing needs, while the resort sites that the project had already been previously approved and that the town will continue to face many housing shortages in the future. A group has been formed around this issue called the Vale Bighorn Sheep Initiative. And they have been advocating through various platforms, including releasing a mini documentary of sorts uh, that's very well done. I'll put a link in the video description. It's a collaborative effort that gives a background into bighorn sheep in the area and the threats that they face, primarily pointing towards the housing development on that winter range. The status currently is that the condemnation is going to continue. The town plans to hold firm on that unless the resort commits to working on alternative solutions. Vale has faced a lot of other criticism as well, especially in the last four to five years, as they have been going on a buying spree, buying up small ski resorts, and creating almost a monopoly in the industry. That, combined with selling their epic passes, which gets customers access to numerous resorts, has been cited with being the reason for excessive crowding. It kind of reminds me of the movie Out Cold, where it's a small town ski hill being bought out by a rich developer. Uh, classic movie, check it out. It's just a classic scenario. What is good for business conflicts with what's good for wildlife and what's good for the locals. It's never gonna change. Everyone's gonna fight for their piece of the pie. But as someone who grew up skiing at a small ski hill, Maverick Mountain, and studied wildlife, I'm on team bighorn sheep and small town culture. <laughs> The Recovering America's Wildlife Act just passed the House. This is a big step in getting a good piece of legislation through. It's on to the Senate now, so we'll see what happens. A little reminder on what the Recovering America's Wildlife Act would accomplish. It would direct existing revenues from oil and gas extraction, $1.397 billion to be exact, towards wildlife conservation. And you might think that sounds very similar to Land and Water Conservation Fund, which it kind of is in terms of taking royalties from oil and gas development to pay for conservation. Where these two programs are different is that the Land and Water Conservation Fund focuses primarily on land issues and land access, where Recovering America's Wildlife Act focuses on wildlife. It's just a little more wildlife focused, which is cool. 1.3 billion would go towards state wildlife agencies, enabling them to take a proactive approach to conserving wildlife and help keep species off of the endangered species list. While the remaining 97.5 million would go towards tribal wildlife conservation efforts, 
This act has a lot of support from diverse groups, both Republicans and Democrats, so it actually has a real shot of passing. Hopefully, this momentum continues. The U.S. Fish Wildlife Service released a proposal that would expand hunting and fishing opportunities on 19 national wildlife refuges, adding 54,000 acres of land that would become available for various hunting and fishing activities. Within the same proposal, the Fish and Wildlife Service noted that lead ammunition and tackle may have negative impacts on wildlife and human health, and said that they are going to evaluate the future of using lead on service lands and waters. Basically, the Fish and Wildlife Service plans to open up a lot of access to hunting and fishing, but at the same time evaluating the use of lead on these lands and waters. Uh, and they are going to start phasing it out in certain locations, starting with some of these newly accessible areas where lead will be prohibited. So it is faced criticism because of this, because they are saying that it is getting their foot in the door to ban all lead. But I think it is fair to mention that lead ammunition and fishing tackle are already prohibited on a lot of national refuge lands. All waterfowl hunting has long required non-lead ammunition, and waterfowl hunting is one of the biggest opportunities on these refuges. I think it's also important to mention that there is sound science that shows that lead can have negative impacts on fish and wildlife. However, we also know that an outright ban on lead ammunition would lead to negative impacts to hunters, as there are not enough non-lead alternatives out there, nor is it cost-effective currently. So it's unclear to me if these proposed regulation changes are an all-or-nothing package. To me, having more access for hunting and fishing is always something to support. It appears that it's not a blanket ban on lead yet, it's just a step moving that direction. But maybe there's more to it that I don't see. So if there is, let me know, drop a comment below. In Wyoming, recent news has come to light about proposed changes to the hunting regulations, primarily as it relates to the allocation of tags to non-residents. So Randy is jumping in to fill us in on exactly what's going on on this week's Deeper Dive. Some uh, changes happening in Wyoming, maybe. Maybe. Seems like It could be really big changes. I'm going to rely on you for a lot of this because I'm uneducated in a lot of the non-resident stuff, but it's pretty... Wow. I've just been trying to read up on it today, and it's... Uh, yeah, well, trying I got... to wrap my head around everything. So, what exactly what's being proposed, and who are the? Yeah, a little players. background. Wyoming every once in a while puts together these task force. The, right now, there's a page out there called the Wyoming Wildlife Task Force, and the governor, I believe, or the director, appoints people to be on that task force, and they take on certain issues. Well, we know that earlier uh, this year they took on the issue of the non-resident resident allocation for moose, goat, sheep, bison, and grizzly bear. Right. And that went from 75% to, to 90% for residents. So, so the 75% of the tags normally go, previously went to the residents and yeah. then 25% would go into the non-resident right. application. But now they that's changed it. switched 90-10. 90, 10. 90 gotcha. to residents, yeah. 10, 10 to non-residents. Which everyone thought, well, that's you know kind of where they're going to stop. Well, they've been having these meetings and... Now there's a push to change deer, elk, and antelope to 90-10. And right, right now, elk is 16% to non-residents, 84% to residents. Okay. And it's 20% for deer and antelope to non-residents and 80%. So I changed that to 90-10. Right. Which, you know, our home state of Montana is 90-10. I get it. If I was a Wyoming resident, yeah. I'd, I'd be wanting that too. Well, and that's if they can make it pay, because that's a lot of the thing in a lot of these non-resident scenarios, that's a huge portion of the budget coming in, right? Because mm -hmm. non-resident takes cost way more than a resident take. And, and 30 yeah. A lot of the times in a lot of these states, like Montana, definitely a huge yeah. cost difference between a resident and non-resident. So 
the non-residents are funding a big portion of yeah. the wildlife management in the state, but there's different workarounds that I'm sure they're doing to make it so they're not going to lose a, the revenue. Yeah, lose the revenue. But here's the big thing that came up in the last two weeks. The Wyoming Outfitter and Guide Association has said, we will only agree with this 90-10 allocation if you give us 40 or 50 percent of the non-resident tags. Because And that's because these guides and outfitters rely on mostly non-residents non yeah. for their clients. Right. That's, they, so that's they, if you're going to take away, or that's their argument, right? right. You're going to take away some of the non-residents, so we want to, you know, be assured that we're going to get our fair our, share. Our share. That, so uh, yeah. the, the real question, I guess, in my mind is, where does the non-resident fit in all this? And, you know, we had the same problem last legislative session in Montana. Mm -hmm. The Montana Outfitter and Guides Association came forward and asked for 40% of our non-resident tags. Mm -hmm. And we as residents fought that. We're like, no way. Because we remember back in the day, we used to have an outfitter pool here in Montana. That we got rid of it through a citizen ballot initiative. Mm -hmm. But for those of us old and gray enough to remember before that and then what was promised as part of that was that the outfitting industry would track a baseline of how many acres they leased which we never got and that they wouldn't go on a leasing binge because when you think about it and and if you're a business person you're like well my risk is less i'm gonna i've got this guaranteed revenue stream right. i'm gonna go lease a lot more property that's just smart business so and then I, land access program like Montana's block management or Wyoming's walking areas, it's hard to compete with what these outfitters right. are able to pay for leasing land. Right. So that's like one of the big cruxes of this, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, if I'm a Wyoming resident, I might be thinking, well, this doesn't hurt me at all. That's what, yeah. Because I think on the surface, it's like, well, you know, there's going to be less non-residents competing for the tags that right. I want to go out and enjoy the public land. So yeah, like on the surface, it seems like it's probably a win for a Wyoming resident. Right. The thing I would caution Wyoming residents is if you can go and look at what happened in Montana. Yeah. When we gave, when we took a big portion of this public resource and we said, we're going to funnel a large part of that revenue of non-residents through a small group of businesses. They went on a huge leasing binge and they'll say, you can't prove that. And the reason you can't prove that is because they didn't keep track of it and report it like was promised. Mm -hmm. But there's not a single resident hunter in Montana who you could talk to who would say their access got better. Because even if it wasn't block management that couldn't compete with these leasing dollars, yeah, a lot of places where people just had, you know, uh, I'm a school teacher and they let us come out and hunt for a weekend. All of that stuff got leased up. So the group that is most impacted by this displacement when these leasing activities go crazy because you, you lower business risk and you give a big revenue stream, the people impacted are the resident hunters. Yeah. So if Wyoming says, hey, we want to go to 90-10, you know what? I'm, I'm fine with that. Wyoming residents should do what they want. Right. I'm just here raising the flag saying, 
we've seen this movie before. There's, there's more to it than what's on the surface. Yeah. Don't, don't let it be sold to you because this task force brought in some outfitter representatives from New Mexico and from Montana to proclaim what a great deal these programs yeah. are. Yeah. And no one told them the, yeah, the they, other side of it. The, and so. like the real simplified view of it in my mind too is it's just another one of those things that's moving towards privatization of wildlife and right. just rewarding those who have the deepest pockets, right. which is just kind of mm -hmm. disappointing. And you know, we talked we talk about the North, Amo North American model a bunch and it's just mm -hmm. like, veering away from that and it's like let's not forget how we got to have all this amazing wildlife and right. you know you, you get more of the, the the risk of saying like the normal human the normal citizen able to contribute and be able to participate in hunting right. the harder it gets for them to do that it's just yeah it, it, it just it, makes it that much less likely that they're going to advocate for wildlife that much less likely that they are going to care about wild places and yeah so it's just it's just a step in that direction to me, and it's just disappointing, I guess. Um, it's super I, disappointing. Now, yeah. here is the thing I would tell people. Go out to the task force, the Wyoming, Google it, Wyoming Wildlife Task Force, and it lists all the members. Yeah. And some of them have already said, I don't want to hear from non-residents. But there are some of them. I have been on the phone with two of them this morning and swapped emails with two more of them. Right. We're like, thanks for your input. Nobody, no one's telling us this story of how guaranteed revenue streams result in huge increases in leasing, which results in a huge displacement of res resident hunters mm -hmm. and causes state access programs to be, have a harder time competing. Yeah. So contact them. I mean, it might seem I, futile. Right. I think it, they're less likely probably to you know, listen to you if you're, it's a sob story about, oh, you know, me, 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 like you're, right. you're hurting me. But if you, like you're saying, you explain the bigger story and there's unintended consequences yeah. other than just us like having a harder time drawing an elk tag in Wyoming. It's, it's more than that. It's right. not, yeah. If Wyoming goes to 90-10, I say, you know what, it's your wildlife allocated how you want and I'll, I'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. But when you think about this wildlife resource and the opportunity that comes from that resource. That resource was built by tons of excise taxes, license fees, volunteerism, advocacy. And so it reaches some point and along comes a small group that says, we're gonna use the political levers to funnel a whole bunch of that to us. Yeah. That, uh, I don't care who you are, if you believe in these American systems of free enterprise and you know business standing on its own, and these ideas of the public trust doctrine, you can't look at that proposal and not laugh out loud. And I don't care. Yeah. I know some, you're going to get some heated emails over this, Marcus, <laughs> the way Bring I'm it saying it. Yeah. But this resource wasn't built by one small group of people. It was built by everybody, primarily the Wyoming residents. And, and we're using Wyoming in this case. But I would bet any money in Montana, we have a new legislative session coming next year. We're going to see similar bills. They got it going in New Mexico. They, it's, yeah. It, and we're, it, the, the reason it's able to foster the way it is, is they do a great job of pitting the resident self-guided hunter against the non-resident self-guided hunter. Yeah. And they work that leverage. Yeah. And from a business standpoint, I'm not faulting them. 
You know, every business well, is trying to get whatever angle they can, but that doesn't mean we got to sit here and take it either. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's great outfitters, there's great like guides and outfitters that yep. do a great job, but it's just like, it's hard to advocate for these essentially subsidies, a heavy mm -hmm. subsidy on their business. It's like, okay, well you gotta, you know, you can't yeah. just have a handout. Yeah. You gotta, I'm, you gotta earn your clients, earn your, you know, the whole right. thing. But, uh, yeah, it's, and that's, maybe this is stretching, but I wonder too, if, the like as far as small town economies go because mm -hmm. a lot of times non-resident it's non-resident hunters contribute to small town economies and you wonder if that wealth is spread out a little more from the self-guided guy i don't know i might be reaching there a little no, bit versus not. like you know if you go to an outfitted mm -hmm. lodge or whatever you're you're consolidating a lot of that revenue into one business and you are contributing to the economy mm -hmm. but you're not going to all those different diners or uh, I, hotels or tax numbers, whatever, you know, it's all funneled through mm -hmm. kind of a narrower, narrower I know business. how old you are, Marcus. And when you were three years old, I went to Forsyth, Montana, <laughs> Eastern Montana. This is before we had our outfitter set aside. You couldn't get a hotel for the first couple weekends of antelope season or deer season. <laughs> I had an antelope tag and it's like, I can't get a hotel. Finally, the last weekend of antelope season, which was like the second or third weekend of deer season, I finally got a hotel mm -hmm. and I went over there and I, and I filled my tags. Now you go over there, all the hotels, all the restaurants, you can get, you want a room? Oh, sure. Yeah. So it, it affects a lot of things. You know, like you said, we refer a ton of people to outfitters because we get the question all the time and we got some great friends in the outfitting business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But when their associations come and try to leverage this public resource in this way, I think most hunters just are like, that That doesn't feel good to me. And whatever Wyoming does, you know, now Colorado, just a couple, I think a month or two ago, they put together a panel to review that, their allocation. Gotcha. So Colorado and Wyoming are the two most generous states to non-residents. We start having a cranking down of opportunity in those two states, the cumulative size of the non-resident hunting pie in the West is going to get a lot tighter. And I just, uh, would we blame those states if we lived there? No, I get it. I no. mean, I, I understand, like, yeah, I can totally see the, yeah. the reasoning. But so, it's just the unintended consequences, I think, that it's just right. hopefully people are aware of. Right, and hopefully Wyoming residents see this if you want to call it a deal, they're calling it the great compromise. Yeah. Uh, hopefully Wyoming residents see that and they push back and say, look, we want 90-10, but we're not in for this yeah. set aside. So we'll, we'll put a link in the description for the task Wyoming force. task force. And then uh, you can always email us at weekly at freshtracks.tv. I remembered the email that time. <laughs> All right, he's getting good at this. <laughs>